guys, we'll get started. Thank you all for being so on time. We were just joking that you guys are already great students already. Come on in, you guys. Grab a seat. The irony of walking in one while you're saying that. <laughs> now I've shamed everybody else. Um, my name is Molly. For those of you who don't know me, uh, one of the pastors here. I've been coming to this church for about five years now and been on staff for four of them. Um, and this is Richard. I'll let you introduce Yes, yourself. I'm Richard. I've been here a bit longer um, and I'm one of the pastors as well. And we used to do the school together, which is really fun, and some house of learning stuff. Um, but now I'm more like house of learning, kids, youth, young adults, like stuff like that. Your... I do a lot more in the areas of prayer and spiritual formation for our communities. And so we only occasionally get to collaborate on this kind of stuff these days. But yes. this is one of our favorite topics that we've gotten to teach on together. Uh, over the past few years in different settings, and so we're excited yeah. to do that with all of you guys. Can you speak up just a little bit? Oh, yeah. You know, we've got a mic. Would it be yeah. more oh, Would it be more helpful with the mic? Okay. Sorry, guys. That's not inspiring. The lights on. Hello. Yeah? Much better? Okay, good. My name is Molly. That's really the only important part that you missed. Everything else was just different. <laughs> I'll just shout. Okay. I'll be. Yeah. Got the quiet. I'll do. Passing the mic backs and forwards will get laborious. So I'll just try and be loud. So if I stop being loud, just throw something at me from the back. And we do. We from do the want, back, I say. <laughs> we do want this to be conversational, so uh, don't feel like you can't interrupt us if there's something that uh, you have a question about. However, we will have two distinct times of question and response, um, which could be helpful to be able to fully unpack during those spaces. So, if you do have a question that feels like it would be good to be fleshed out. Know that we've got two of those spots if you want to just jot those down. If you have a clarifying, like you didn't understand what we said or didn't hear what we said, just raise your hand and we'll, we'll be able to clarify that for you. Um, but we've kind of laid out a schedule on your chairs just so that you guys know what direction we're heading tonight in particular. This is going to be a three-week class, and uh, part of the reason for that is that this is such a robust topic that we can't really... Uh, do a sufficient job in in an hour or even two hours if we're going to be able to cover what the whole Bible has to say about the areas of gender and ministry. So we're starting in the Old Testament today and we're giving a little bit of a foundation of what it means to um, thoughtfully and critically interpret the Old Testament as well as, uh, as well as laying some foundation for some of the cultural influences that have pervaded our day and what to do about them as well. So should we pray? We should pray. Your pastor prayer, so I feel like that's your job. <laughs> I know. I get roped into that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I would love to pray. Jesus, we thank you so much uh, for your word, that it is living and active, and that it is here as a tool to shape and guide the way that we are to live life. Uh, thank you, God, that this is a room of people that I know and can already tell uh, want to be shaped by your scriptures and allow them to form and inform the way we live our life rather than uh, imposing our thoughts and our preconceived notions onto the text uh, and making it say what, what we want it to say. So thank you, God, that we come under the authority of your scripture um, 
and that we in this room together can be brothers and sisters that open up the text of scripture, thoughtfully think through uh, what it has to say, um, knowing that good and godly people come to different conclusions in different ways. And so would this be a space of safety? Would this be a space of curiosity? Uh, would this be a space of learning? And would you be honored and glorified in everything we say and do in this space? Amen. 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 You're going to get us started, yeah? Shall I say something? Okay. So we wanted to start by uh, introducing ourselves, but a bit of our story, because this is probably one of the theological conversations Molly and I, in all of the podcasts and classes and things we've done together, have most looked forward to doing for Westside, because we've got a special passion for it. And so letting you guys know where we're coming from and where that passion um, arose and how it's affected us, things like that, we thought that might be helpful for you guys because you're probably here because you're there's a journey going on for you and so let you in on our journey and so I um, I think some of my passion goes back to some sort of family of origin stuff I uh, both my parents disabled my dad is 100% blind my mum just bumps into a lot of stuff mostly blind Um, but it meant I grew up in a household with like a strong female leader who had to take care of most of the stuff and so that just as a child shaped my normalcy of the world um, and then uh, and, and she was just man, she is a bastion of inclusiveness like she, her radar for when people are pushed to the margins is so radical um, like anyone who was weird on our street was over for dinner it was like she just had this radar and ability and um, you know that led to me getting in lots of fights at school with the kids who would bully the Pakistani kid or things like that. It was just, it was just normal. Um, and, you know, at the time that I grew up, yeah, 80s into the 90s, uh, the UK, where I grew up, was on a journey of a sort of social conversation um, about uh, gender, the role of women in society, the workplace, things like that. Um, and at a time of quite a lot of social change, um, coming to America, um, for me, has been an experience of feeling like the, the way women are treated has gone back 30 or 40 years from my experience. So when I first moved here, it was very weird. I remember, never forget, like, week one on the job, and uh, I don't know if anyone's been here long enough. Who will remember? You'll remember Carly McGill, who worked for the school. And just casually asking her, like, what's it like being, like, in America working, and especially working for a church? Like, do you sense the glass ceiling? Like, just, you know, because in the UK, the answer would standardly be more of a, yeah, it's kind of still there, but we're definitely making progress. And her response was like, oh, of course, obviously. I can't have a career in ministry because I'm a woman. And just being like, yuck. (laughs) Just, like, heartbroken. Um... But it, it runs deeper than just like origin, childhood, and experience. Um, and I think, you know, care, just having a mum who did a good job of helping me have a radar for inclusivity, uh, I then came to like get to know Jesus and get to know the scriptures. And i never forget like one of the most shaping moments for caring about the way women are treated, especially was as like a young guy learning to teach the Bible, teaching in a Bible college, and we were teaching a class on Christology. So like, who's Jesus? What's he like? What's he about? How do we relate to him? 
And I just remember, not even like a big deal, but just like a little 10 minute rabbit trail in a class of talking about how Jesus wasn't just fully man, fully male, he was fully human. And just talking, teasing apart a little bit of like, when we think of male and female, we have like certain cultural stereotypes in view, but that the Bible has a much more holistic box for being a human. And just, you know, it's theologically correct to say that Jesus is in touch with his feminine side. It, you have to explain some of the irony of that statement for it to make theological sense. But just that Jesus wasn't just man, he was human. And there was this girl sat at the back corner and she was in tears, just rolling down her, her face. And she said, I always knew Jesus could be like my savior and my leader, but I never knew he could be my friend. And I was just like, no, not on my watch. That is not happening to another woman. I am not gonna let that pass. Because she had been told all her life a male-centric version of teaching, of the scriptures, of Jesus, of everything. And it was heartbreaking to see someone who'd gone 20 years and had never felt like they could relate to Jesus, not because of what the scriptures say, but just because of how he had been presented. And so that was like a really shaping moment that like lit a fire under me to find out more about what the Bible had to say about gender. Because at the time I was also a bit of a square peg. So I cared about, I was in a, uh, in a church that was quite strongly complementarian, which is a word we'll define at some point, but the men and women, gender roles, very different, very hierarchical, men do all the stuff, women are allowed to support. Um, and so there was a lot of constantly bumping to like, whoa, oh wow. Like, look at, look at what the church does. And so it was a real crucible of like this girl and her experience of being ostracized from Jesus because of bad theology and then just constantly bumping into things in the church where it's like you say one thing, but you act in a way that half the church is excluded. And so it was, yeah, real shaping sort of five years uh, of exploring. Um, and then, yeah, coming here, getting to, like, have a, have a space at Westside that s said, we're soft complementarian. Um, but if you've been around here for a long time, you'll have seen change. Like, the church is on a journey of figuring out how to be soft complementarian um, in our theology. And we'll, we'll unpack the theology and things like that. But, um, yeah, so right now, the part of my journey is, like, we ordained Molly to be a pastor. And I was just like, yes, finally, you know? Um, because I think the scriptures have a really clear mandate for that being a good thing that the church needs. But also, so celebrating, but also like, man, we've got a long, long way to go. And we've got a lot of healing. Like we've got a lot of acknowledging her and trying to help people heal and, uh, and reintegrate you know, like one theology class is not going to fix this. There's a bunch of relationships, like like friendship relationships, but how do we partner together relationships to be restored as well? Thanks for sharing that, Richard. Uh, for me, I was not raised in the church, and so uh, my family of origin often 
influenced the way I understood how women were to participate and show up to society. I have a very uh, strong-willed, brilliant mother, uh, as well as a very determined, uh, steadfast father. So I have, I have two loving parents that modeled for me a beautiful expression of partnership, uh, even without a biblical context. Um, and so I'm very grateful for that. But by the time that I came to know Jesus when I was 15, uh, I was launched into a youth ministry, as most 15-year-olds are, and the youth pastor was a female. And I didn't think anything of, of, of it because I had a uh, both a mom and a dad that were went off to work and were very present in my life as well. Um, and so I didn't it did not raise any eyebrows in my in mind or in my heart uh, to have a female youth pastor. So for the for two years I was discipled under this youth pastor and she taught me the way of Jesus how to read my Bible how to pray how to lead, uh, gave me opportunities for leadership and saw potential in me. From that point, it was time to decide where to go to college, and so I ended up at Biola University, um, which was the most beautiful and formative four years of my life. I'm very grateful for that time there, um, and I majored in Bible and theology while I was there, and this was the first time Biola, um, as beautiful as it was and as strong theologically as it is, um, is very conservative in their theology around women and ministry. And so this was the first time that I was taking like a deep dive into what does the Bible say, what does it mean, and how does it apply to our life um, beyond the basics around youth ministry. And so I started to become rather disoriented around um, not only hearing an interpretation of scripture that didn't line up with what I had experienced in the first couple of years of my time following Jesus, but also uh, the questions from like all sides of, I was one of three women in my Bible classes. And so people would ask me, what are you planning to do with that degree? And it was never a genuine curiosity. It had a lot more to do with, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Um, and so th those started to make small moments of pain in my heart. And uh, I sought out uh, a few professors that had a slightly different way of thinking things. But by and large, four years, of understanding um, a very conservative theology wherein women did not have any room to uh, lead, uh, to operate in maybe some of the giftings they felt God had given them. There was, there was hardly any room to be anything outside of a mother um, or a wife. And that was really hard for me. But I was also learning simultaneously the importance of scripture and so I was not able at that moment to suss out the difference between the two and so I thought well this this is what a submitted life looks like it looks like laying down um, the things that I maybe feel God is calling me to being open to them but also um, reckoning with some of the pain around not being used by God in the ways I thought I think to extract one of the principles that I still very dearly hold on to in that season is that I'm not afraid of the word submission. I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm not afraid of the word authority. I think it's a beautiful thing. I think what that looks like in my life has shifted a bit as the, as I've studied um, some perspectives outside of just the one presented at Biola University. So I went on uh, to get my master's degree, uh, despite the fact that I didn't quite know uh, what I was allowed to or not allowed to do in the kingdom of God, um, because I felt strongly that that was uh, something that God was asking me to do, regardless of what it looked like for me to actually use it in my life. 
Um, and by that time, I had gotten married to a man who had a very different paradigm, um, was raised in the church his whole life, but had a different way of thinking uh, through the theology of what it looked like for women in leadership, which I'm very grateful for him um, and the ways that he helped uh, lead me through some of that stuff as well. But I spent the next four years in seminary getting to hear lots of different perspectives, that there actually was more than one way to think about this. There was one, more than one way to study um, some of these topics that are not as black and white as I had traditionally been taught, but actually there was a lot of room for gray um, in this based on good and godly, intelligent people who have dedicated their entire lives and have come up with different conclusions. So that was really helpful for me to know that there are a wide variety of perspectives on this within the orthodox view of holding a high view of scripture. Um, and it's taken me on a, a journey. I'm, I'm still very young, and so I think it's really important for everybody in the room, but especially um, those that are, are still discovering um, the truth of God's scripture to be open-handed with the things that are not black and white, the things that are not Christology, the things that are not to die for um, marks in our theological stances, to be open-minded to that. That being said, um, God has shaped me into someone that not only like wants to um, like lead and operate out of the giftings that I think he has given me, um, prophetic giftings, teaching giftings, but also create space for more women to do so as well. Um, because I know that the, um, the formation opportunities for women are slim to none uh, because of this, the um, repercussions of what this conversation and the damage it's done has done to so many women, discouraging them um, to not live into the calling that God has given them on their life. So that's been a little bit of my journey, still very much in process, but I'm really excited to be here with you guys and to unpack some of the stuff that we've learned along the way. Just one thing to add about both of us. Uh, Molly and I disagree on some of this stuff, so really important for you to know. And where we do, we'll try to let you know the different sides. I think the reason we can be like good conversation partners to help each other grow, which has been amazing. Uh, I've learned so much from Molly as she's wrestled with things, and her, I mean, she's a woman, she has a perspective I don't have, you know, um, just understanding the repercussions of the theology. Um, but the reason I would just, you know, I don't feel like I have to be here to make sure this is taught right or anything, because I know that Molly, the things, uh, that we can be more sure of, we agree on. So sometimes I describe, like, as we try to unpack theology from the scriptures, there's some things we can write in pen, because we're like, yeah, it's really clear. And there's some things where we're like, oh, it's not clear, and or, man, biblical scholars are finding out lots of stuff all the time. I'd better write my answers in pencil. And for us, I think there's quite a few areas where we're both writing some stuff in pencil, trying to do the best justice we can to the scriptures, but being a bit open-handed as well. So some of that stuff might come out as well. Mm -hmm. yep. Right. What's the next step? I think it's back to me, actually. Okay. The handoff. It's all right. <laughs> Maybe next week we'll have two mics. Um, so something that we thought would be super helpful to start this conversation with is actually to acknowledge maybe the elephant in the room uh, around the buzzword of feminism. So oftentimes uh, churches, uh, not, not this church in particular, but churches that are having this important conversation uh, tend to be accused of it being reactionary to a feminist culture and that we're just trying to um, 
stick with the trends. And so I want to call that out for what it is and also give context for what we mean when we say feminism. Uh, because I think it's really important to define our terms and to know that we're all using common language when we use something as big as a movement around feminism. And so I'm gonna actually walk us through, there are three distinct waves of feminism that have taken place in America over the past 150 to 200 years. That doesn't mean there haven't been waves of momentum around women rising up and trying to find equality and equity in society up until that point, but these three waves of feminism have had a distinct impact on the church over the past 100 years that is worth acknowledging. Now I, I lay this information out to give you some context and so to orient you around the cultural conversation before we dive into what, it, what, what the whole Bible has to say about this. Because there's areas where it's worth acknowledging that um, we can't throw out all elements of feminism nor can we live into all the principles of feminism because there are a lot of parts of feminism that are extremely unbiblical. There are also a few parts of feminism that are worth acknowledging because it, it honors and dignifies women in a social sphere in a way that is appropriate and would fall in line with the character of Jesus. So, starting with a quote, one of my favorites from um, one of the authors that I studied along the way, um, Dr. Anderson, says, one of the biggest challenges facing Christians is understanding what gender is and what it isn't. A lot of traditionalist paradigms, say, of the 1950s, were shaped by a Freudian anthropology that reduced men and women to their evolutionary functions or their biology. In this model, gender is ultimate, is the ultimate way we understand ourselves. In the 1960s, feminism reacted to this by downplaying the significance of gender. The conservative church has since responded to feminist paradigms, but I'm not convinced, this is the author speaking, that we have crafted a distinctly Christian in contrast to both, both Freud and feminism, the scriptures teach that gender is both a significant means of reflecting God's image, but not the ultimate source of our identity. I wanted to start with that quote because I think that she nuances very well the importance of acknowledging both sides of where, inf where culture has influenced, maybe um, being hard pressed on all sides, but also acknowledging that our ultimate source of identity is not found just in this conversation, but in Christ. So, we see the first wave of feminism. This is where we're gonna land for a few moments. The Industrial Revolution uh, in the late 1700s all the way through to 1860 actually was the first driver of the first wave of feminism because prior to the Industrial Revolution, we see an agrarian society, a slow, farm society taking place in America. This was more commonplace. And both men and women were working from home. There was no negative connotation around working in the home because it was a necessity for both men and women to be there to be able to run a home. They divided the workload. There was a little bit more partnership going on and homemakers were both men and women. The value in this role of a homemaker was assumed because both were participating in it day in and day out. Once the Industrial Revolution starts to take place and work starts to be framed up outside of the home, we start to see separation and maybe even a power struggle and a power dynamic where subordination starts to kick in in a different way from a societal perspective, where men go off and work and women are stuck at home to take on the same amount of responsibilities in homemaking um, times two 
not being a little bit more isolated and men go off and work in the public sphere and it creates a dissonance. With that, we see a lack of representation um, for women to be able to participate in society because they were stuck at home. So the first wave of feminism, the agenda was to create equal access. So the right to vote was not offered for women up until this point, or to own property, protection in marriage and divorce, child custody protection, equitable wages, educational opportunities, equal professional opportunities, even the ability to testify in court without a husband or a father. Now these are important because prior to these moments, uh, partnership was more of the norm in the agrarian society. Once we see this dissonance take place, there is a radical hole in a lack of equity around acknowledging women as human. And this was something that needed to be fixed. And that's why I'm hesitant to say, let's just throw out all the ingredients of feminism, because this first wave of feminism was extremely important to women being able to participate in society as human beings, but being acknowledged as a human being. To be able to vote and to own property and to be protected in marriage and divorce, these are key ingredients of what it means to value a human from a socio-political perspective. So the first wave of feminism the primary agenda was equal access to showing up and participating in society. By 1920, the suffrage amendment uh, passed by the House vote a three-fourths vote. So 304 people voted yes, 90 people voted no. So it was uh, a strong vote in favor of honoring women in society and in the workplace. In the 1920s, they were able to vote officially, and by the 1930s, they had the opportunity to pursue education. It's by this time that World War II starts to get pulled into the forefront. So men go off to war in World War II and women start to assume the jobs in the workplace because there is such a need for women to be able to fill in the gaps for where a large majority of men had still occupied the public sphere. But by the time World War II comes to a close, men come back and the workplace reacts against this, believing that these jobs should be reserved for men when they come back. So men dominate the workspace once again, and women are driven back into their homes. And the message that's being communicated during this time in history is that homework is less valuable and only for women, and the workplace is reserved for men. This causes, of course, another power struggle and um, a, a grab for authority to, to define and shape or excuse me, that was defined and shaped solely by men. They had power in society during this time. This caused women to become passive and restrictive knowers. So they uh, lost the ability to think for themselves, to advocate for themselves, and needed someone in authority to think for them and tell them what to believe rather than creating pathways for themselves, uh, just because of the re-dehumanization that took place during this time post-World War II. So patriarchy uh, starts to set in in a particular way, and that was the primary name of the problem. So it drives a second wave of feminism. Now this uh, second wave of feminism was a quest for genderless superiority. And what I mean by this is there was two agendas being spoken at the same time. Out of what seems to be a reaction 
of being devalued again, which is something we need to empathize with and be careful of. But women's differences were seen as weaknesses. They were sent back into the home. They didn't get to participate in the workplace in the same way. And they, they lost the ability to think for themselves. Patriarchy starts to set in. So the women's differences are seen as weakness. And so there, there is a reaction to this where they want to become superior. But simultaneously, they're also trying to dissolve the importance of gender. So the agenda was not only to become better than men, to react against what was happening in society, but also overcome sex distinctions. So this is the first time that we start to see um, maybe fluidity in, in gender and the difference between the two. This is where feminist theology was um, based on a liberation theology that the Bible is a book to free the oppressed. I don't disagree with this, but it's not the only thing that it is. Women's differences became a source of pride. Women started to uh, want to react and say that they are superior, that males are imperfect females. And from that perspective, the matriarchy is restored from their perspective. This is important to acknowledge because we see this Though we understand why it's taking place, society is reacting against and does not have a paradigm for partnership, and so a power struggle sets in once again, like we see patterns all throughout. But we also acknowledge that this is not biblical either. That um, the, the, the narrative around women being superior, males being imperfect females, this is not what the scriptures have to say, that there's actually equality and equity established in the partnership we see all the way from Genesis 1, which we're going to talk to in just a moment. But it's important to call out that just because some of the ingredients of the second wave of feminism are not in line with the Bible does not mean that we don't understand why it was taking place in society based on the treatment of women. Finally, we've got a third wave of feminism, and this is the wave of feminism that hasn't fully fleshed itself out because it's happening in lifetime. It's happening in our society right now. And it's the spiritual quest for spiritual superiority. So this is a particular type of danger, and I think why many, so many people want to make sure that this conversation around women's roles in the church is not being informed by the conversation currently taking place in society is this golden age of feminism um, arising from a handful of radicals where women are not just superior to men, but superior to all spiritual beings. Sounds um, a little bit funny when you say it out loud, but there's a, a divinity to women that should be worshipped uh, and that the authority is inherently given based on their goddess status. So women are renaming themselves as divine. God is becoming self. Women are renaming the world. They're able to heal themselves, to develop a set of rituals that can make them worthy of being worshipped. Now this, we can acknowledge, uh, has elements of the demonic in it. I think there's also, um, at least speaking as a female, a deep level of empathy in knowing that a lot of this uh, third wave of feminism is driven by a deep hurt of not feeling acknowledged, of not feeling heard, of not feeling valued, and therefore trying to elevate oneself to the highest status as an overcompensation for a lack of worth being either internalized or externalized by society. So I hesitate to point a finger at what's taking on in culture and actually want to recognize the pastoral grievance in, 
in the heart of those who are clinging to a type of uh, feminism that seeks to find value and worth through making oneself God when God himself wants to give acknowledgement uh, and, and call them worthy of being, their, of being his children. So those are the three waves of feminism that have taken place. Good to acknowledge and frame up what we mean by feminism because truly, depending on who you ask, depending on the generation that you're speaking to, you actually might be talking about three different types of feminism. Some are good and worthy to be um, maybe celebrated because of the equity that was established in the socio-political sphere by women being able to participate. Some are demonic. And so we need, to be, we need to be clear about what we mean when we say feminism and allow the ingredients of some of those things to say that actually does line up with scripture and then call out which some of those things are very anti-scripture. So that's, we just wanted to orient what that conversation around feminism was, like how that happened, what is currently happening and how it's gonna impact the way we um, navigate this conversation. Yeah. Over to you. And I guess like a, a key observation, um, sometimes there's a complexity to answering the question. So, hey, like Richard, you wanted to re-examine your theology and what the scriptures say about the roles of women. You know, it, was that culture influencing you? Yeah, it was. Like the culture of my mum who, you know, doesn't really go to church and the people around me and loads of things. Uh, but culture, the, the key thing is culture didn't give me the answers. Culture provoked me with the questions. And I think that's a, a sort of sensible way of teasing out. Like that is real, that's happening in our world. Like uh, a year or two ago, like the church re-examined its theology of race because culture asked it a question. Now, some churches then continued in like deep empathy with the conversation going in society to be drawn in the same direction in their theology. Um, you know, and that can be unhealthy. Um, you know, then there can be another church that can, you know, all the empathy be like, we've got to, we like, we've got to search the scriptures and check we've got something to say about this. That's what actually is God's heart and then search for the answers. And um, I've seen a lot of Christians who are just reactionary to like, culture's a part of this, so it must be evil. And I don't think that's fair. Um, it, it, it sort of is a very weird radar to have that just because it's something outside the church, it must be evil, because the scriptures don't attest to that reality. God's at work outside of his people in loads of places. Um, and so, yeah, there's a there's an there's a interesting relationship all through history here. Um, and even man, I wish we could just do a history class sometimes. Like you go back before first wave feminism, and um, you know, before the Enlightenment, um, it's interesting the effect Christianity had on men's and women's roles in different cultures as they navigated different social changes. Um, but it's interesting in our culture in the West how the Enlightenment, early modern Europe, industrialization, professionalization, like some of those things you mentioned. Um, yeah, there was like a new 
well, we can talk about new waves of feminism, but there was a, that was a new wave of patriarchy mm -hmm. as well. So sometimes the way we tell the history is uh, we can kind of make out that there's a culture war that actually, yeah, it's, not, it's not nuanced enough to really be telling the right story. Um, so what I wanted to do is give you an example of framing things as a culture war gone wrong. Um, just to put flesh on this. Um, so in 1997, Susan Oski, um, who is a, a conservative writer, published a famous article called Femme Fatale, The Feminist Seduction of the Evangelical Church. Um, and what was happening is conservatives, there, there weren't just rumblings, but there were broadcast headlines that the church was under attack by feminism. And it came down to Bible translation, the NIV. Okay? And, and it was that the NIV translation was quietly going gender neutral. So, so like note the language it, it's not just that there's a culture war but it's subversive it's sneaky it's insidious and, and so the, even the way the problem was framed and the accusation was that changes to the translation were not being made based on bible discoveries textual information uh, developments in translation and communication theory but were being fueled by changes occurring in culture so it wasn't it wasn't a fight or even a conversation. Would that all fights could be conversations and people could do conflict better. Um, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, a, about Bible translation. It was a, there's a cultural. We, the insiders, the conservative Christians, are in a position of, of power, that, and we need to like defend and maintain what we, what's been handed down to us, which is true. And there's a posture within uh, Christianity, conservative Christianity at this time, which their, their ecclesiology, like part of what they think the mission of the church is, is to preserve the church from culture. That's a sort of narrative being spoken over by the church. Um, in the summer of 1997, the Southern Baptist Convention, who get short shrift sometimes in these examples, but they are a very typical conservative American voice. Um, they condemned gender inclusive language. So they came out on one side of this war and just said gender inclusive language in the Bible is wrong. And they claimed that it does not come from those who hold a high view of scripture. So for example, if you wanted to translate a verse and say human instead of man or mankind, you don't have a high view of scripture. Valuing scripture and valuing, like having a heart where you want to listen to scripture has to be paired with preserving male language in the way that we translate the scriptures. Um, so this rumbles on. Five years later, 2002, today's NIV, the TNIV, gets released in 2002. And it is condemned, roundly, soundly condemned by the Southern Baptist Convention. Loads of articles, uh, loads of, uh, 
I mean, even sermons preached by like mega church conservative um, preachers condemning this translation as a, a capitulation to a feminist cultural movement. So I just want you to so you get the you get the sense of like the the battle, the way the battle is being narrated, the way the story is being told in culture. Um, And that's what I want to get to. So that's the question. That's the million-dollar question. Were they right? Yeah. I just want you to understand the tone. Um, the Wayne Gruden, who lots of good things Wayne Gruden's done. So I'm going to use him as a negative example. It doesn't mean I think he's evil. Um, but he said the T and I V translators have decided to translate the idea of a passage and to erase male-oriented details. So that that was the claim. That that's what's going on. Um, a, oh, I've forgotten her name, I should have written this down. Someone who was the wife of one of the presidents of a conservative seminary uh, had a, a famous quote saying that the male-oriented language that Christians had always used in translating the scriptures had come under attack. So her claim was like for 2,000 years... We've said God made man in his image. Uh, or Jesus said, like, I will draw all men to myself. Well, yeah, and, and Christians had always understood that there was, a, there was supposed to be a male ring to these words. That women get included, but there's a, a priority of maleness in the identification of humankind and, uh, yeah, and, and the way God interacts with humankind. And that this was the thing that was under threat. But, to answer your question, Christians have been translating the scriptures using gender-inclusive language for hundreds and hundreds of years before the NIV came out. Okay? And, and I, I don't want to give you like loads and loads and loads of examples, so I just wanted to pick a couple. Um, now, we've got loads of material to go at. Um, medieval people had the Psalms first six books of the Bible and the Gospels in English from the 11th century and so these translations were circulating amongst clergy and literate lay people but they were also used in sermons uh, you know, people, people, a lot of, lot of non-literate people's knowledge of the scriptures was in these sermons and letters that they listened to and so we've got loads of access to how the church Treated the Hebrew and Greek terms, like did they see a like a male tinge, or was it gender neutral? By the 14th century, um, Wycliffe's English translation in the, is in common usage. Um, so there's so there's loads of access to materials, um, and you know if we want to go outside the English language, then we can dive into you know, loads of other translations. I mean the Latin Vulgate is hugely dominant um, but for the first few centuries of the church there's hundreds of translations into Ethiopian, Coptic, Syriac uh, Aramaic all sorts of translations um, so Genesis 127 here's an example God uh, and it may be more familiar to us uh, to say God made man in his image Okay, um, the TNIV says God made human beings in his image, male and female, he made them. So it doesn't say 
God made man. It doesn't say God made mankind. So the question is, like, is that capitulating to a culture war? Is the narrative right? Well, the Hebrew, Adam, is a Hebrew gender-neutral word meaning human being. The Hebrew word Adam has exactly the same gender connotations as the English word human. It does not have the same gender connotations as the English word man and mankind. It's just, it's a more accurate translation. It's more faithful to what the Hebrew contains. There's no maleness in Adam. Like, and, I, and I say Christians have been doing it for hundreds of years. The Latin Vulgate, translated in the 4th century, which, by the way, translated by St. Jerome, and his right-hand man, no, his right-hand woman, a saint, gifted in languages, who without, without her partnering with him, we would not have had the Latin Vulgate translation. So there you go, another famous woman from history that we don't know about. Um, but that uses the, uh, the Latin homo or hominem. Again, the Latin homo just means human. Does not mean man. Does not mean mankind. Hominem just means a man. So for hundreds of years, the dominant translation in the Western world used a gender-inclusive term. And it could have used... that. There's a, there are Latin words meaning man, mankind... There's, there's equivalent words. It's not that they didn't have alternatives, but they chose the gender-neutral one. Um, late medieval sermons do the same. Um, one uh, sermon quote that uses one of these uh, like early English translations says, God made them out of nothing, male and female. You see, for them, their primary drive, as they were translating the scriptures, the questions they had in mind, which framed what's important that people catch of the meaning of this word was that all people are included in the community of faith they had a drive towards inclusion and there's a there's some history to do with changes in early medieval europe sorry early modern europe and the reformation where christians instead of asking the question are men and women included in the kingdom because of the rise of this new wave of patriarchy, uh, their the theology and churches and, and the social conversation came to be dominated by questions of what are male and female roles and are the differences we see in society justified? And it's really interesting that it's at that time you start to see the maleness of terms used in translation begin to be introduced into the translation of the scriptures. Um, just one more example uh, a 15th century sermon translates John 6 um, which uh, be familiar to us no man may come to me unless my father draws him um, they because of their concerns because of the questions they had in mind um, yet the word man has, a, has a, a tinge to it a maleness to it where it's like oh something might get missed here so the 15th century translation was no man or woman and, and examples like this are not few and far between they abound it's hard to find like late medieval and pre-early modern sermons and translations that don't use gender inclusive language now we're not doing a class on how to translate the bible so what's the point of everything i just said the point is if someone comes to you and says hey 
I noticed dot dot dot. There was a woman doing this. Why isn't a man doing this? What you know? But when they point at the roles of women and say your church is just being shaped by culture, like, well, okay, that's an open question. Okay, but we need to exercise a huge amount of caution in letting people make that claim because it is falsely made a lot, and we we just need to, we need to resist that reality. And that's partly, um, you know, I want you guys to understand the journey we're on because we get to sit in front of you and disciple you for a few weeks. But our church is on. I want you to be understand how this journey is moving, why it's moving. But also, like, if we as a church lean into what we think the Bible says is healthy and try to take ground from culture, try to be a prophetic presence, we are going to get the same kind of accusations that the SBC gave the TNIV translators. And so we, we need to equip ourselves with an awareness that when someone says that, we don't go, oh, uh, oh, am I, oh, you know, and feel threatened. And just be able to think, okay, let's just, that's not helpful, let's ask the right question. Like, what's driving the question and what's driving the answer? Because they're both really important to examine. So it's Susan Oskley. Uh, let me spell it for you. O L A S K Y, Alaski. Okay, so we have uh, more content that we're going to be diving into. Uh, another reason why it's three weeks. But first, we want to come up for air, we want to take a moment. I know that there's probably questions coming to the surface of your of your mind, or you need a little bit of a break from maybe some of the things that we're sharing. So we're going to spend the next five minutes creating space for you guys to throw out some questions. We're going to write the majority of them down so that we can, if, if we don't have a, a direct answer for you now, we can thoughtfully think through them and come back next week. And then we're going to give five minutes to use the restroom, get coffee if you need, stand up, get the blood, you know, reflowing all over the place, and we're going to come back and dive into uh, Genesis and a few other pieces. So are there questions that have come out of some of the preliminary things that we have discussed so far? Yeah? Um, the mic, you turned up a little. The mic? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> I can answer that one right now. We're also recording this, uh, and so if there are some ingredients that you didn't catch right away, uh, this will be available to you as well. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to know what your definition of gender is. Of gender? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. I'm going to write that one down. I'm taking notes. You're taking notes. Great. Okay. I think that's a really important question because I think uh, depending on how we answer that question can help define what we mean here and some of the things that culture is defining simultaneously around the conversation of gender. Well, the, the word gender yeah. This is a good opportunity to big up the House of Learning podcast. We will say something about that. Um, there are lots of things we're going to run out of time for or say we don't know 
let us think about that and we'll get back to you. Some of the getting back to you could be the House of Learning podcast. Um, and because of what your question was, it just reminded me, we did a podcast on gender stereotypes a little while ago, gender stereotyping in the Bible, where we talked a bit about the difference between uh, sex and gender. Um, so we'll, we'll try and say something, but that might be one you'd enjoy because that's a question you're interested in. Yes? Yeah, I'm Sean. Um, I agree with everything you guys said so far about cultural and cultural influences. And it just seems like, you know, that's a lot of conversation to go through prior to the real key conversations that really get answered these questions about the role of women in the church. So, but, you know, we, it seems like, like three weeks is a long time to go through these things with us just sitting here listening to cultural things that I agree with totally. Yeah. That men have, you know, societies have oppressed women in so many ways, but it really has nothing to do with the Bible's role of women in the church, you know what I mean? You're going to like the bit after the break, because we wanted to set set up the history and frame it. All of the rest of this class is Bible time, so you're going to be in a happy spot. (laughs) I think we too just want to acknowledge that some of the traditional interpretations of scripture have been also highly influenced by a patriarchal society as well. So just calling both sides out But the rest of it is Genesis, and then the next two weeks are all the New Testament passages that we're diving into. So, yeah, yeah, just framing the conversation. Rebecca. It's, yeah. Um, I'll answer this one because it's so close to what we just talked about. Um, it's, it's two things. Partly um, the professionalization of work means that power and influence in society becomes centralized around professions. And men almost exclusively come to dominate those seats of power. And women, you know, the, they get treated differently, valued differently. Women's work gets, you know, like lots of things Molly was saying with the history of first wave feminism. Um, there's some change there, but it really crystallizes in the Reformation. Um, because it, the Reformation causes the church or the, the Protestant church to want to take a fresh look at how it involves itself in society and politics. And a uh, better historian than me, if you're interested, lots of good books to read. Um, yeah, you can trace the influence of social patriarchy on, um, on theology, which just should caution us how easy it is to have our cultural cues and influences Affect when we open up the Bible or open up a theology discussion and think, yeah, but surely this. Like, we know that, so that's a launching off point to now go and make sense of everything else. Um, and that's one of the reasons that sometimes culture change that causes us to re examine um, could be a good thing. Sometimes we bounce out the other side saying, yeah, no, I think we still think the same thing. But it's really hard to take our cultural glasses off, which is why this conversation 
has actually been helped. We're living in like, I don't know if you guys know this, we are, as Christians, are living in a golden age of biblical studies. The understanding of the biblical languages and the text and things like that has just like exploded in the last like, 25 years, something like that. Um, and it's a lot of the time been helped by the fact that these explorations of the biblical text are being conducted in a multicultural way. So there's just so much more opportunity for the sort of monochrome monocultural look at questions to not deceive us which is great news for us So, yes, the structure of the church in its, in its people, um, there is a, a maleness in the Catholic Church. I was just talking about translations. So that's another conversation about why men come to dominate the seats of power in ecclesiology. But it's worth noting, actually, that up until the early modern era, there was room in the church for men and women to exercise places of spiritual authority over men and women, over civil affairs, to be able, to, like for a, a woman theologian, to be able to write to a politician or a civic leader or call people out. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of um, familiar with the picture of nuns and abbesses as like, oh, that's a choice to withdraw from society and lock yourself away because some guy hurt you. Like, that's the sort of stereotypical film or something, right? It's a little sound of music ish. Um, but actually that wasn't the reality like these these women who'd given themselves over um, to like to serve Jesus in his church use their gifts to write to teach to make disciples and not just of other women but that went away with the changes in early modern society and the reformation so there is some interesting still difference of like a bit of a tipping point in our, in our western culture at least around that time I'm aware I'm not writing any questions down. I'm just answering them. I'm really sorry. We need to have a break. Real quick, I'm, <laughs> you'll be the last one, and then we'll take a break. But I'm aware that we wrote down your question and didn't give maybe even a, sh or a short um, example so that we all know what we mean when we say gender. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God acknowledges that he makes male and female in his image. We recognize both the similarities in that he creates human beings in the image of God, so both reflect equally. But there's a distinction made, male and female. That's what we mean by gender. Now, culture has uh, moved that conversation forward uh, around masculine and feminine, and how maybe stereotypes around culture and society has started to define and shape what masculine and feminine look like. We're talking less about that and more about the establishing of two distinct genders, male, female, both equally made in the image of God. So that's the, the short, brief version, so we all know what we mean when we say gender moving forward. But we would still recommend we we spend an hour talking about that too, so there's lots to be said about that, but there's just a short... Can I do a book recommendation? A book recommendation, yes, and then her yeah. question. I, I, uh, Brian and Shelby mentioned it on Sunday, um, but the reason your question is actually so important is we are trying to connect and reach out to a culture when maleness and females 
openness as genders are not the only two options. How do we communicate with them in a way that is uh, effective and can be clear to them? And distinguishing between sex as male and female and gender as masculine and feminine turns out to be really, really useful for us when we want to talk with clarity about our beliefs. So it's a really good question, and there's no better book than Preston Sprinkle's book, Embodied. Um, Preston Sprinkle, um, yeah, a great guy. I think it's the best book he's ever written. Um, so if you, I don't know, if that question connects with you because you're actually like, yeah, I actually, there's a transgender guy at work. Like, how, do I, how does this cross over with his world? Read that book. It'll be really helpful. Yes. And then... Genesis, prior to opening the Bible, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about the historical and cultural context, specifically in the ancient Near East, just to orient us on that particular question. And we will do the same in the New Testament when we're talking about the letters, whether it was a large circular letter like uh, Ephesus, where that letter actually made it to multiple churches, versus 1 Timothy, that was a personal letter written to one church. We're going to talk through all of the historical and cultural context around each book of the Bible as we navigate our way through the discussion through the through the scriptures. But Genesis will you'll hear a little bit of Genesis and the ancient Near Eastern culture tonight. If that kind of yeah. and well done for asking exactly the right question. Yes. As we come to the scriptures. Beautiful. Okay. Five minutes. Stand up. Do what you need to do. We'll come back here. There's coffee in the back. Yes. Seven forty. Five on that clock. 7.45 on that clock. 7.40 in real time. It doesn't sound good. I'll just put it down.